Welcome to the Christ and Coffee podcast. This is Pastor Haig, Pastor Jeremy, and we have Pastor Berge Jambazian here with us. Pastor uh, Jambazian is the minister to the Union of the Armenian Evangelical Churches of North America. Both Jeremy and I belong to uh, the AEUNA, which is the Armenian Evangelical Union of North America. And today we have uh, the minister to the ministers, the pastor to the pastors, someone who is our leader in our, on our denomination, not on our uh, religious organization. And uh, we just want to welcome you and, and thank you for joining us so, all the way thank from you. California. Um, so if you could just share with us, uh, what is the Armenian Evangelical Movement? Yeah. Well, first of all, I really appreciate for this golden opportunity, Reverend Haig. Thank you, Reverend Jeremy. And I'm so delighted to be, to be part of this program. Well, the Armenian Evangelical Church. I have been reading lately, you know, uh, old books printed maybe 150, 200 years ago. And recently I was reading a book written by a priest in 1832. 1832. The evangelical movement started in 1846, 47, 48, you know. Uh, those were the years. But deep down, there was a spiritual awakening within uh, the mother church that started, and people wanted more Bible-centered gatherings, prayer time, and uh, spiritual direction. And uh, there was like small Bible study groups gathering together uh, and reading the Bible, praying together, uh, let me make it very clear that the Armenian evangelical movement, when it came into existence, had no connection whatsoever with America, with England. There were a lot of German missionaries, but these German missionaries were very much involved in benevolent and uh, other, uh, let's say, schools or so programs. So the movement started within the mother church through the reading of the word and prayer and meditating on the word. Believe it or not, I was born in Old City, Jerusalem. There were like six priests and two of them bishops who were part of this movement, the awakening movement, the, the reform movement, which later we called it like Armenian evangelical movement. Uh, the Americans, the British, they came later and they helped us to get organized. But the movement started by the power of the spirit, by the reading of the word, by fellowshipping with one another. And then uh, my, in fact, father, who was born in 1885, 86, you know. Uh, he talks about the livelihood of this movement, which later was called evangelical movement. And also the Turkish government officially accepted the movement. So Armenian evangelical movement is a spiritual reform movement within the church and I, I talk with archbishops uh, and we do share about the details 
how this movement had started because sometimes they say, why don't you just close your doors, join us, and let's get over with this Armenian Evangelical Union or whatever. But well, this is a movement started by spirit and not by man. Man just gathered together. And uh, very interesting that I looked into the depth of the movement. There were three uh, major uh, foundation stones of the movement. One was the word of God, reading. Second, prayer. And third, they never kept it for themselves. They shared it with others. They're, they witnessed to others. So uh, the movement started and the, st the churches were growing, let's say in Marash, there were three churches, but in fact, there was four. There was another small church, Badveli Nazareth Herinian, who was later massacred in 1909 uh, as they were heading to the Armenian evangelical uh, 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 pastoral gathering in Adana. Uh, on their road, uh, they, they spent the night in Osmaniye, Armenian Evangelical Church. They were burned alive in that same church with 17 Armenian Evangelical pastors. So uh, deep down, the movement is a spiritual awakening within the mother church that uh, if, you, if you read some of these priests, there were also some bishops in uh, uh, in Istanbul, you know, and uh, in other cities who joined this movement. And then, of course, uh, the Americans walked in and, uh, believe it or not, at that time, UCC was involved and uh, some Presbyterian denominational missionaries and many other missionaries. It was very Christ-centered denominations, and they helped us to get organized. My father was a member of Marash, the second church of Marash. Very interesting that uh, I was impacted through my dad, uh, who lost his wife, pregnant wife, his mother, and his three, four brothers were burned alive in Second Church of Marash. He was among them, but miraculously he survived. And then he used to talk. He said, the enemy turned into ashes, even our church. However, our faith in Christ and the education we received through the church still there. And my, I, I learned the spiritual, uh, uh, how to live Christ in daily life through my daily living of my father. So who is, who was an active member of the Armenian evangelical movement. So this movement is started by uh, the search to the truth, by hunger to the word of God, and they were drained and exhausted by ceremonial services and they went right into the word of god you know that's mm -hmm. how the yeah. movement started
that, that's yeah. a, that's that's amazing uh, that you say that. Uh, I I recently found out that I have uh, ancestors that go back to thirty sixth generation of Derhaders mm. in Marash, and they yeah. helped start the school in the Orthodox Church and wow. the Vajra Bedjan, which is Varta Bed. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, Bedjan, so, of course. Uh, so so yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I also know there's a famous book about uh, Marash and the genocide and what happened afterwards yeah. by uh, Steve Kerr's grandfather, uh, yes. Stanley Kerr. It's called The Lions of Marash. Um, I have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a very, very good book. I read it. Uh, Kerr, Steve Kerr's grandfather, I think. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know... Uh, when I, I went to Marash, you know, I, I was like uh, searching the streets and the churches in Marash. There was only one Armenian evangelical church. Just the walls of that church were kept. All mm. the rest were wiped out, you know. Uh, and uh, my dad used to talk about the castle. So I went up to the castle. And I started preaching from the castle for our television program live, you know. And then a young man came and said, what are you doing? What are you preaching? You know, I said, I'm preaching the word. I said, why don't you get a little dirt for me? I gave him like $5. Oh, he said, that's great. I'll get you a dirt. So he got uh, dirt that I brought with me, uh, whole, you know, to, uh, I still have them. But... Uh, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm standing there where my dad used to stand. I'm standing there where my dad used to worship uh, and to work. And uh, of course, the massacre of Marash occurred in 1920, while the genocide occurred in 1915. Uh, however, the in 18... 85, 86, 87 were tough, tough years where thousands of Armenians were killed in villages. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from the German archives. I have German archives, 115, 120 years old, and uh, it's written in old German. And you have the details of the massacres that occurred in different regions, towns, and the Germans were allies with the Turks and they had access into the disaster area. And the, we have the description of the missionaries of what they have seen and what they have felt. I mean, hmm. uh, so uh, very, very touching and interesting to know that faithfulness and also uh, Christian education teaching the word, not just preaching, but also teaching, and then creating in them the deep uh, conviction that Jesus is alive. And they kept that even while the second church of Marash was turning into ashes, and yet their faith never turned into ashes. And uh, he went through their Zor, my dad, with a couple mm. of friends, and then uh, they lived for a short time in Jebel Druze. The Druze, the Druzen are like another sectarian uh, movement. That means 
neither Muslims uh, nor Indian religion, but in between, you know, and he lived there for a couple of years. And then from there, through the desert uh, with my mom and two brothers, one of them was killed because of the uh, winter uh, uh, time, you know, uh, from the weather. And they arrived in Jerusalem, old city Jerusalem, to the Armenian St. James Convent. The convent accommodated like 3,000 survivors of the genocide. My dad was one of them. So uh, several of my brothers, I myself, I was born in the convent, in the hmm. old city St. James Convent. And believe it or not, in St. James Convent, I was like telling about this to Reverend Ron Tomasian, who was going to take a team to Middle East, you know, unfortunately, because of the COVID-19, things have been canceled. Uh, King Herod's palace is like 100 meters, not, not even 100, 50 meters from the St. James Convent, the gate of the St. James Convent, King Herod's wow. palace, where the three magi came and met with the, <laughs> the, the it's It's like, you, when you tell the story and the location, it, it sounds like uh, very irreal, and yet it's a fact. And so I grew up in the convent, went to school there, and then there was this Arab-Jewish conflict, and we moved to Jordan. Many of, uh, many of the Armenians moved to Jordan because of the war. So the evangelical church uh, the Nazarene church, in fact, initiated uh, to build a church in Jerusalem and they rented YMCA building, which is right across King David's castle. The 99, not 99, 100% of these members, the members of the Armenian Nazarene church were the remnants, the survivors, of the Armenian evangelical churches in Antap, Marash, Hajan, mm -hmm. Adana, you name it, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's how the Nazarene church started in Jerusalem, but deep down it was Armenian evangelical church. Yeah, you know, I think we have a point of connection there. Our families, I mean, we're such a small community that our families are all intertwined and connected, but my wife's family is uh, Sharik yeah. Jan family. Yes. And there's pictures of them at the YMCA in Jerusalem. and. There's even a picture of my grandfather, uh, Edward Tomasian, visiting yeah. uh, the YMCA in Jerusalem and uh, sitting right there next to my future great-grandfather-in-law <laughs> without me even realizing that they yeah, but ever knew each other. Yeah, but right, Vilichamichan right. was our pastor in Jerusalem. Yep. Uh, and later, for a short period of time, he was in Jordan. But Badvili Tomasian, I have pictures. Uh, my dad is in that picture, you know, when yeah. he visited uh, the old city. Amazing. So we were scattered all around the world and thousands of them arrived in Brazil. There is a town 100 uh, kilometers from uh, uh, the, the capital city of Brazil. 90% uh, of the population there were immigrants and most of them 75% were from Marash area and a lot of evangelicals but they have been assimilated with the Brazilians 
So uh, we were scattered all around the world and uh, the evangelical movement, uh, but really, hi, this is so important because you have also a lot of connections with Marash and the history of Marash as well as Badvili Jeremy. I just wanted to tell you that the movement, the reformation that started, there were four Armenian evangelical union in Cilicia, four during the massacre, you know. All four had the same uh, creed. All four had the same order of the service, worshiping, praying, witnessing, you know. There was no difference among these four Armenian evangelical unions. Of course, after the massacre, they spread all over the world and, you know, uh, for survival purposes, they joined local groups and so, but uh, the faithfulness of their uh, evangelical spirit, we're not talking about evangelicalism, we're talking about evangelical spirit. That's, uh, there's a huge difference there. One is more liturgy centered, the other one is Jesus centered, you know. And I praise God for who my dad was and the faithfulness and then also the clarity of his faith in Christ was amazing, yeah. just amazing. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's the movement, uh, Badvili, uh, yeah. you know, uh, that we belong to. A lot of things have changed because we moved from one country to another, from one culture to another. And then the massacre, unfortunately, created a lot of uh, uh, difficult situations we had like orphans packed with armenian kids thousands of them were uh, bought by the local elite muslim leaders kurds and in fact yesterday i was watching a program civil net in armenian uh, they were like interviewing a lady who is armenian who was a little girl during the massacre uh, and she grew up uh, somewhere in Anadolu, but uh, as a Turk, and yet she knew the higher mayor, she spoke a little Armenian. Wow. So it's like uh, spread all over, you know. Hmm. We, we were very, you know, just, just for your own information, when the massacre started, there were 70,000 active Armenian evangelical members in Cilicia only. Wow. 70,000, wow. 70,000, just imagine. Wow, wow. Yeah, yeah we, we just celebrated the 105th uh, anniversary of uh, the genocide. Uh, April 24th uh, was a big year. Um, uh, this year was a big year because uh, the United States Congress finally recognized yeah. and called it genocide. The House resolution and the Senate resolution passed this uh, in 2019. Yeah. Uh, so it's been something that we've been fighting for as, as Armenians, uh, regardless of our denomination or political or religious affiliation. This is something that we've all been destroyed by, uh, this genocide uh, that, that, that we're talking about. Um, it's amazing, though, how we, we still survive, though, and how we spread and uh, yeah. throughout all these various yeah. countries. Yeah. And, you, and you hinted at it already. You were, so you, your family went from uh, Marash to Jerusalem to Jordan. Yeah. Where, where, yeah. where, where else has this journey uh, taken you? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Haidostian called me last year and said, 
what do you know about the Armenians or Armenian evangelicals in Jordan? And uh, I sent him some pictures, but Vili Chamichan was also <laughs> part of that picture, Reverend Jeremy. And then also told the story how the Armenians settled down in the valley of Amman. Amman was like a desert valley, you know. Uh, and I remember we were like three weeks in the streets, homeless. We had no home, nothing, until my dad found a shop, small shop somewhere. But uh, two, three of my brothers could not fit in, so they slept outside. But we used that small shop for some time and then moved into another house. One single room on the top of the mountain when I say house. So uh, in, in Jordan, until 1958, we had a very large, great community. Unfortunately, because of the wars in Middle East, because of the Six-Day War, most of them, they immigrated to Sydney. So I went to Sydney, Australia. We have like oh. maybe 50, 60 uh, cousins and uh, their kids in Australia from our family very big family my, from my mom's side and from my dad's side so uh, and i preached in armenian evangelical church in sydney a church that was established by the grandchildren of the survivors of the uh, genocide you know and it was very touching to serve that church with the same spirit same uh, doctrine and same livelihood, you know. Uh, I had a good time in Sydney, but also uh, talking about the Middle East, uh, we have Syria, Damascus, the Armenian evangelicals, they reached, they, they arrived in Syria, Damascus, and they started a church. I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Reverend Balyozian, the father of uh, Vahe and Haraj Balyozian. He was the Armenian evangelical pastor in Damascus in 1941. You know, he was part of the Armenian evangelical movement or member of the evangelical movement that moved to uh, Damascus. Syria, well, the church was on the straight road where Paul came to Christ, you know, uh, very significant, the location of the Armenian church. Hmm. And then you go to Aleppo, you have Bethel's church, Nahadagat's, Emmanuel church. And if you go into the history of these churches, I mean, 99% were the survivors of the genocide, you know. Hmm. And uh, all the famous families like Bezjan, Balabanian, uh, you name it. Uh, and then went also to Kesab. Kesab, we have seven small villages up in the mountains, right by the, by the border with Turkey and Syria, you know, in the mountains. And uh, I, I pastored in those churches for four months, you know to cover up uh, some of the gaps they had in Kesab, 
which has been bombarded by the Daesh, the ISIS, a couple of years ago. Fortunately, with the help of Reverend uh, Selimian, we did repair the damages and now things look great. But there were like seven villages uh, in that area. And there were Armenian evangelical church in each village, you mm. know, in the beginning, because it was so close to the border from Antab, Adana, Marash, Urfa, they moved to Kesab, you know. Mm. Mm. And we, we have some famous Armenian pastors who pastored in Marash and then later pastored in Kesab. For example, one of my my dad's uh, nephew was a priest in Marash. He attends a worship service that was led by Dr. Rubian, Rubian, and he was so moved and touched by his sermon. And uh, then they were waiting to uh, anoint him as the new priest of the church in Marash, uh, apostolic church. But then he met Christ in this church during the Rubian's preaching. He gave his life to Christ and then uh, they dragged him on a donkey. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They said, you're betraying your church. But he was faithful. He had a beautiful voice uh, and amazing. This story was written by the wife of Reverend uh, Agbabian, Herand and Mihran's father. He was the pastor of Marash Church. Later, he pastored in Aleppo. So in 1948, in Chanasir, the Armenian monthly uh, magazine in Middle East, published this story of Stepan Jambazian, who later became a pastor in Kesab for several years. You know, he pastored in Kesab and also in Tarsus, Darsus where Paul was born. It's amazing how we, you know, one thing that really uh, impacted my life, the foundation, the Armenian Evangelical Foundation was so strong. They spread all over the world and they kept the foundation. You know? just, to, just to tag team on that, I mean, it's, it's hilarious as you make these comments, how many different like streams of connection I can make. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Helen, Helen Rubion is the daughter of that Professor Rubion. You're uh, kidding. You're yeah. And Helen, Helen Rubion is my great-grandfather's uh, wife. Wow. Stepan Tomasian, who, who pastored the church in Kesab for several years uh, before he died. So this, yeah, all this. of these streams come together. It's fascinating how this works. But, but Bhavi, I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned several times now throughout your story. I mean, your story goes yeah. all over. I mean, from Cilicia to the Middle East to Sydney to uh, I'm sure later we'll get into your time in Africa and Darfur. And, but but I'm curious, like way, way, way back at the beginning on a personal level, you mentioned several times how you and your father had a special connection. Yes. And you, you have learned uh, worlds from your father. And yes. uh, I'm curious just from, from that perspective, from that angle, um, what, 
what was it about your relationship with your father that made you who you are today? How did you grow up? How did you? Yeah, this is how this you is, cultivated in that experience. You know, uh, my dad had a small, not Starbucks, but a very small <laughs> uh, coffee shop in Old City, Jerusalem. Huh. At the same time, he used also to offer. Uh, it's like kalapacha. Uh, that means head and feet of a lamb. You know. It's called in Turkish kalapacha, head and uh, other pieces, you know. So a man of faith having a small, very, very tiny, small business in Old City, Jerusalem, not too far from uh, St. Uh, Surparuchun, uh, the resurrection church in uh, Old City, Jerusalem, and there were a lot of young people who arrived to Jerusalem seeking for a job and had no place to live. And all of a sudden, my dad brings this young man and says, oh, this man has no place to live. Let, let him stay a couple of weeks in our home. And then he stayed maybe a couple of years, like the uncle of Reverend Suvajan, Hovannes Suvajan, was a young man. So we used huh. to call him uncle, uncle, uncle. But uh, we have no... Uh, let's say relationship, but my dad brought him as, uh, and he lived in our house, you know, poor and yet rich because of my dad's uh, uh, hospitality, openness, and constantly trusting the Lord that he would provide uh, the needs. And very interesting, as I was observing my dad and watching him, I realized a couple of things. One, he never talked about financial crisis that he used to go through because God provided on a regular basis, you know, the means. And he took care of the family as well as the other young people who were in town. In fact, uh, I don't want to give some of the names, but some of the popular names uh, at that time, they used to live in our home, my dad's home. He was not a rich man but he was a faithful man and he believed that God will provide. Hmm. And uh, I realized three things in my dad's life. Uh, one, every day before he goes to work or before even we wake up, you hear his voice before sunrise, he prays. Hmm. Uh, in Jordan, there is a spot, uh, two holes, these holes represent my dad's knees. He used to come on his knees every day and pray. And I went uh, in May to Jordan just to be as close as I could to those two holes, but they have built a new home on that uh, small for, uh, front yard, you know. And uh, so prayer hmm. was part of his life. Second, uh, he couldn't read the Bible. He had uh, a sight problem after a while as he was getting older. So he asked me to read the Turkish Bible every day, one chapter to my dad. And my dad used to give his personal comment about the passages we read. And I was like amazed at his comments made about the passages read. 
so sound, so biblical. And third, he used to share Christ with the surrounding. Surrounding? What surrounding? There were no Christians. They were all Bedouins <laughs> and Muslims. I mean, uh, yeah. no Christians at all. So the, very amazing that every morning as the Bedouins used to go out with their herds, they passed by our shack on the top of the hill, and my dad prayed with them, blessed them, and sent them to the field. Mm. When my father died, some of my brothers weren't home because they were looking for a job, and I, we couldn't even communicate with them, neither by telephone or you have to travel to see them. They were in different cities. Me and my sister were home. And I was like a young boy, a junior hire, you know, when my dad died. And then in Jordan, you have to bury the death the same day. You cannot keep it in a refrigerator. There is no refrigerator. Mm -hmm. So it's a law. You have to bury the same day. It was two o'clock. No money. What to do, you know? And the Bedouins, they heard about my dad. They came back. They wrapped him in white linen. They paid all the expenses and they carried his body to the Christian cemetery breaking the law because a Muslim should not enter a Christian cemetery. Wow. They, wow. Entered, they entered the Christian cemetery and I'm looking around. Only the pastor is Armenian. And then uh, one of my older brothers, he heard it. He was in the military, British military. He came. But all other brothers, they had no clue and no, they didn't know that their father passed away. So I was there. I was present. When I went to Jordan in May, I was standing in front where my dad was buried and then talking to him, you know. It's like, uh, so uh, three things uh, were mm -hmm. very impactful. When he witnessed, he didn't care who those persons were, where do they come from, just love, loving mm. them, accepting them. And I think that power of love impacted the Bedouins. And when he became like, he had something, he couldn't urine, you know, that, that was like uh, very natural in that part of the world. And uh, there was no way to take him to the hospital. Finally, we got him there. There were like, 22 people in one room, in one hall, patients, you know. And my dad reached out those patients with the gospel. When he died, they were all in tears saying, this man was an angel. He came and he taught us about Jesus. So that mm. was him. And then after his death, I was like 17. And then I asked myself, am I really? Christian in the footsteps of my father and I saw a huge differences, you know, and then uh, I committed my life to Christ and then uh, uh, I have never, never uh, did any other job. I just continued my studies and then went to theological seminary, but the beginning was with my dad uh, reading the Turkish Bible every day. <laughs> And then uh, also listening how he used to witness the methodology that he used, the language that he used, but then the prayers every morning 
before sunrise were so powerful, I could say the whole family were shaken with the power of his prayer. So these are the three things that really impacted me. And when it came to money, uh, we were not rich, but we were still uh, happy because we had everything, mm. you know, uh, bread or whatever, you know. We're talking about bread and cheese and uh, nothing else. <laughs> it's uh, not that, a, that we're that not was, talking about cars no, no, no. and uh, no, 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 no cars, like no, no telephone, uh, no right. <laughs> if you could have, uh, if you could have five minutes with your dad right now, what would you be doing with your dad? I'd, I'd love to know that. You, you know, uh, to be honest with you, I would ask him the first question: that tell me, tell me more. <laughs> what is the secret of your faithfulness in your faith? Hmm. It is, it, it's amazing that he was pushed into the church to be burned alive, survived by God's miracle. He carried the scars on his body. Half of the body is like dark. The other oh, one is wow. white. That wow. bur burnt part is, I always asked him, why is your half of your body is so dark? He never said anything. One day, finally, when I grew up, he told me the story. So uh, what was the secret of his faithfulness in what he believed? He never denied Christ. He never played games. He was very strict, and God has given him the wisdom. So I would ask him, tell me the secret of your faithfulness. Second, I would like to know, why reading the word every day and not skipping one single day? Why? What, what, what forces you to read the word of God? Every morning, come on, son, before you go to school, read the passage. And then I used to read in Turkish uh, the passage. He was a Turkish-speaking uh, father. He spoke Armenian, but his daily language was Turkish. And then the style of uh, witnessing was like, uh, how do you find the words? How do you relate to the people? And I found out that the secret uh, is love. He loved everybody. Uh, hmm. He didn't care what religion you belong to. But I still would ask him, you were burned. Uh, you immigrated from uh, Marash to Jerusalem and then from there to Amman, Jordan. You went through a lot, but how? what's the power that kept you mm. going mm. when things were, in fact, against you? you know? mm. Wow, wow, that's uh, quite the story. Um, and it's amazing uh, to hear, especially... Uh, that he had a coffee shop uh, and we're talking about yeah. Christ and coffee. This, is, this wasn't <laughs> pure range. We just found this out as we're talking. Amazing yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. So, so you, you, so you became a Christian after his funeral. So you really, yes. and, and yeah. So you, you pastored a church in Kesab and then you ended up, uh, what, 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 where did he go after that? Um, oh, uh, you know, uh, my dad, uh, we were like, he was the janitor of the, Armenian Nazarene Church in Amman, Jordan, the janitor. The church was established by Reverend Samuel Krikorian, who came as a missionary from Pasadena 
to Middle East to plant Armenian Nazarene Church. He was a Nazarene, but the ground, the members, the people he worked among them were Armenian evangelicals spread all over. You know, it was like uh, the name was Nazarene and yet evangelical. So uh, uh, my father was a janitor, faithful janitor. We were janitor's kids. Last May, I went to the same school that my dad was janitor. And I spoke with the principal. There were students, Arabic students. I addressed to them. And then I realized that the doors were still the same. They were not painted. <laughs> they wow. Were taking care of, I mean, it was like I had goosebumps. Man, everything yeah. is the same, you know? Wow. And uh, then I used to, we used to help our dad because you have to broom each room on daily basis, you know? The classes, there were like five or six classes on the top and then two kindergarten classes. On. So we used to help him. And then uh, when he got up to pray, then you asked a question during the prayer time, man, is this man a janitor? Uh, where, where does he get the spirit of prayer, the fire? And on Sunday, we used to go to church but we were young people. You had sometimes different desires, like to go to a movie. And one Sunday, finally, my dad wasn't feeling well. I said, now I'm going to go to the movie. And I was a little <laughs> scared, but I went to the movie. And then uh, two movies, one in Arabic, one in English, you know, uh, Western movie in Amman, Jordan. And then only my older brother knew that I went to that movie, came back home. And then in the afternoon, the pastor is visiting us with his wife. I saw them coming towards us. I said, oh, oh what's happening? You know, and they, they <laughs> arrived. Trouble. And then my dad said, oh, my son told me about your sermon this morning. That's wonderful. Great. Uh, and I told the story of Daniel in the uh, uh, in the coop, you know, I mean, in the pit, you know. Mm -hmm. I made up I made up stories, you know, biblical stories. And then the pastor came and said, "I just came to see how things are going with you because no one from Jambazian family showed up at the worship service this morning. What happened? What's going on?" And then my dad was like, "Son." Didn't you tell me that he preached about this subject? It was all lie. Yeah. And then uh, after the pastor was gone, uh, unfortunately, the, one of the systems at that time, I have been punished. <laughs> he, he, he really punished me in different ways as they were used to. And I had like uh, that I would never forget. And why? And then he cries and says, listen, son, I love you. Uh, I punish you not because I hate you, because I love you. I don't want you to lie and become a liar. And uh, so then after his death, I asked myself, am I a true Christian? Am I following Christ? Uh, I was very, 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 very religious, but I had no personal relationship with the Lord. And that happened 
after his death, we buried him and there was like a revival meeting in uh, Amman, Jordan. Uh, and uh, I attended that revival meeting in Arabic language. I gave my life to Christ. And the evangelist who led me to Jesus, uh, he used to live in Fresno the last couple of years of his life. He passed away in Fresno, uh, but he was an amazing Maurice Georges, the evangelist who, uh, during his preaching, I came to Christ. And that was the beginning of a new life. Hmm. And very interesting, my older brother, Jacob, uh, and another brother, Gary Garo, they used to work in different places in Amman, Jordan. And then one day, they walk in into our shop, so to say, our home, the shop home, you know, with, an, with a man called Dr. Lemby. Thomas Lemby. And Lemby realized that this blonde guy could not be a Muslim. He should have a different background. He found out that he's Armenian, Christian, so he came to talk to my parents. And then he said, I'm going to start a new hospital in Bethlehem. I have no children. Can I adopt two of your sons? You have eight sons and one daughter. Let me have two of them, and I'm not too far. I'm just an hour drive in Bethlehem, you know. My mom was against it. My dad blessed the whole idea and said, oh, wonderful, go. So who should we send? Jacob and Gary, how about you both go to with Dr. Thomas Lemby? So they were adopted by Thomas Lemby. Wow. And uh, in Bethlehem, they learned English. Thomas taught uh, lab technician, you know, how to Gary to become lab technician. He was like 50 years lab technician in Palestinian camps in Jericho, as well as in Bethlehem. And very interesting that Jacob, uh, he wanted to go to Bible school. He applied to the Nazarene Bible school in Beirut. The answer came, we don't have enough beds available, maybe in the future. So uh, then Billy Graham, with 30, 40 people, visit Jerusalem and then Bethlehem. Billy Graham, he, he, uh, it was in 52, 53, after the revival in Coliseum in Los Angeles in 1948. Uh, he started reaching out the word, so he came. Among these tourists that he was uh, the guide of, uh, Billy Graham, was Dr. Uh, a Swiss missionary, Eisenhut, Eisenhut, his name. So Eisenhut, Dr. Lemby said, there's a young man who wants to go to a Bible school who would like to sponsor him. Eisenhut says, I'll take care of him. And then, in three months, my brother comes and says, I'm going to Switzerland to study uh, in Bible uh, school called Beatenberg up in the Alps. So mm -hmm. Jacob, my dad was so happy. He says, this is an answer of prayers. My mom was so against the whole idea to let the son go, you know. 
and Jacob came to Switzerland through Eisenhut, who also studied in that uh, same Bible school on the top of the hill, above the clouds, in the Alps. You know the three mountains, Eiger, Mönch, Jungfrau. Jungfrau is the virgin, and then monk, monk, and then Eiger. These are the three popular uh, high mountains. Our seminary was right across it, uh, you know. So Jacob, uh, before graduating, uh, he felt that uh, his dad is not feeling well. He recorded 10 songs of comfort. He used to sing. He was a musician even uh, before going to the school. And he sent a tape, tape uh, comforting, encouraging us. But we had no chance to let him know that your dad passed away. But he felt like he's gone. Hmm. And he sent the tapes. And then uh, all those 10, 11 songs were about heaven, about the life after that, and talking about my dad. So that was very, very, for me, it was very touching to know without contacting my brother, he already sent the tape. And then my dad never saw him on the pulpit. Uh, he, he passed away. And then my brother, Jacob, he didn't want to come home. He stayed longer in Switzerland and continued his musical studies. But let me just tell you, Billy Graham, uh, visits Bethlehem, Dr. Thomas Lemby. Who is Thomas Lemby? Thomas Lemby was missionary in, medical missionary, Presbyterian medical missionary in Cairo, Egypt. He was heading through the desert to Ethiopia. On the road, the bandits, the bandits attack the American group and they were going to kill them. And then they found out that a small desert cockroach entered into the ear of the head of the bandits. And they asked the doctor, they said, if you could save our, uh, uh, our head, uh, the chief of the group, you know, the bandits, then we will uh, go with you and uh, help you to arrive safe in Addis Abeba, Ethiopia. Under the, the moonlight, he did the operation. Everything went very successful. Uh, and this head of the bandit felt better. And they all went to Addis Abeba, Ethiopia. Who was this bandit that I'm talking about? He was King Haile Selassie of Ethiopia. You know, wow. Whoa. King Pilate Selassie of Ethiopia. Wow. That's the story. You can go to the YouTube and read the whole details. Thomas, L-A-M-B-I-E, Lambi. And then you can read the whole story there. And so Thomas Lambi built the first American hospital in Addis Abeba. It's called American Hospital. And then he came to Amman overnight. And he was heading to Bethlehem. That's where he saw Jacob, uh, my brother Gary, and the whole story started from there. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. There's a small chapel in Bethlehem. It's called Presbyterian Chapel. Accommodates like 50, 60 people still there. Uh, 
you know, in Bethlehem. And between Bethlehem and Hebron, Hebron, Khalil in Arabic, where uh, Abraham was buried, you know, mm-hmm. between Bethlehem and Hebron, you have Bet Jala, Bet Jala, which is like five, six miles from Bethlehem. That's where, until today, you have the American hospital built by Dr. Thomas Lemby. That is amazing, uh, amazing stories. Um, I, I know there's so much, there you have so many uh, uh, stories. Every time we talk, I, I learned five new things. This is thank you, thank you, wonderful. Um, I know you ended up uh, being a minister in, in, in Lebanon during the Civil War. And uh, what, what was, what's it like uh, being a pastor in the Civil War? And then also, how, how is it now as we're all locked in quarantine? Um, to be honest with you, it was very, very, very tough years of my pastoral years during the Civil War in Beirut. However, however, uh, the situation at this time in Lebanon is worse than the civil war at that time. Yes, we had no water, we had nothing to eat, uh, we had bombs falling, uh, you know, into the Armenian headquarters, a uh, lot of damages all around us. And I was like pastoring the Normarash church. I have like a Down syndrome daughter who cannot take bombing and uh, all these sounds were affecting her emotionally. Uh, And then wife and then two kids, three kids, you know. So I, hello? Yeah, we're here. Oh, Mm -hmm. it it went, uh, can you see me? Yeah, yeah, we're here. Yeah, you're good. I I can't see you. So it says Zoom. Shall I? Uh, anyway, you could, you could keep going. Okay, okay. Yeah, just, just to let you know that uh, I got sent me there. The French French ambassador said you have to leave the country. You are a French citizen. I declined to leave the country. I took my family to Paris and then went back to uh, Normarash Church. Continued my pastoral ministry, but just to let you know, 80% of my pastoral ministries were among uh, the hurting people and non-evangelicals who have been the victims of bombardments. And I used to take care of them. And then during the war, with the help of my brother in Germany, and because we have thousands of pastors in Europe with whom we studied theology, my brother, myself, they helped us. And so we started a clinic, a dispensary to help the wounded people. Uh, And then I brought in an ambulance, Mercedes ambulance, very sophisticated one. That was the only ambulance existed in Burj Hamoud during the civil war because they used to transport all the wounded people in the trunk of the car. And before they arrived at the hospital, they, you know, died. So I used to bury people who were not evangelicals, uh, people, maybe two, three, or four of them every day, you know. And then we started the dispensary, still 
the name of the dispensary is there. If you go to Marash Church today, you will see on the wall, the plaque is still there. And we also started uh, like uh, dentistry. And let me just give you the statistics. During the civil war, we were able to take care with seven doctors working day and night, day and night, 24 hours. We took care of 26 thousand patients indiscriminately. There were Muslims among them, Armenians from different uh, denominations. So somehow I should have been dead three times uh, by a sniper, by a bombing, and a bomb fell right in front of me, 120 caliber bomb, and did not explode. Wow. It went into the into the foundation of the Armenian Evangelical Church. And the bomb stayed there for some time because you have to, uh, you know, uh, unlock the head of the bomb, but it was turned around in the air. Instead of hitting the head, it hit the bottom of the rocket and it did not explode. So I have pictures of that bomb you know, and I could have been, uh, you know, killed on the spot, but God is so faithful and uh, somehow he saved us, he protected us, we were able to fulfill our mission. And after I left uh, Lebanon in 1981, only because of the sake of my kids who were like, uh, couldn't bury the war anymore, so we moved to Germany to pastor or to be an evangelist in the German communities with Jens brothers. They are Canadian brothers. And I was ready to sign the contract in 24 hours. And then I received a phone call from Dr. Kasuni saying, we heard you're, you are in Germany. We need you here. Could you come over? you know, and we'll take care of your expenses if you can stay with us for a week. So I came to UACC. I felt like the need is so great at UACC. That's in Los they, Angeles? Yes, because they were reaching out to Armenians who were arriving from Armenia in hundreds every week. So they, we started the Armenian Evangelical Social Center at that time. And then... Uh, uh, English as a second language and whatever programs UACC initiated. And then uh, that's where I worked for some time with grandpa of Badveli Jeremy Tomasian, <coughs> Edward Tomasian. We were amazingly connected because he was in Jerusalem, he knew us, he knew our family, and he was an amazing man filled with a lot of humor. That's why he wrote a book about humors only. You know, I have that book. Yeah. It's a point of pride for me that while all the other uh, pastors in our communities wrote uh, books that tried to be serious, my grandpa just wrote a book <laughs> that was trying to get people to laugh. I'm, I'm telling you. And whatever he had written, all those jokes in the, the humor, you know, uh, but being with him, his smile, and his relaxed uh, spirit 
I, I, I praise God uh, for the time we used to work together. You know, this was at UACC when I arrived. He was my supporter. He was my help, but also uh, Badveli Avakian's wife, the mother of Grace and Elizabeth Kirkjian. Mm -hmm. uh, we worked together, Badveli Tomasian, uh, and then uh, uh, in the name Aznib. Aznib. Uh, the pastor's wife, Avakian, the mother of Grace and Elizabeth, and then myself, uh, we were like a team to reach out the Armenian community at large. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, amazing. Uh, the, it was very hard for me to leave Beirut. I rejected the invitation by the French embassy. I stayed there. I paid a heavy price. Uh, I have been wounded a couple of times. I have been shaken a couple of times. Emotionally, it was very tough to be there. Uh, you know, I have dealt with very difficult situations. I don't want to describe what I have gone through, but by God's grace, until 1981, September, I was there doing my part and I moved to Germany. And a day before my contract, I got the phone call. I came for a week and then I felt, oh, maybe the Lord wants me to be here. So I stayed and the rest is history. I pastored UACC for 12 years. And then uh, uh, while I was at UACC, I started the TV program in 1984 with local uh, team members. Uh, I had like 10 people on the committee television program. And then we planted uh, the churches in Glendale among the Armenians who were arriving from Armenia. At that time, there weren't too many churches in the area. So I had like at four o'clock in the afternoon, at least 900 people attending every Sunday, you know, the which was called Christian Optics for Armenians. And then I uh, called Daniel to come and help me and the rest is history. So uh, just to uh, let you know that uh, I was a pastor, but when the need in the field is medical, I spent maybe 80% of my pastoral years in helping to wrap up the wounds of the wounded people indiscriminately. There were a lot of Muslims, Shia Muslims. I didn't care whoever needed help. We were there to help them. I'm, I'm kind of uh, curious. I, I think probably we'll start to... Um wind things up a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious as we start to kind of come to a close, like, uh, Haig and I are both young pastors. So yeah. we started off, um, took our own churches, uh, at a, at a young age. And so that meant for both of us, I mean, I know Haig very well. We are always on the phone laughing about ridiculous experiences and situations yeah. we get ourselves into. Uh, we both have moments where because we're young and we started off as amateurs and got thrown into these positions, uh, we had to navigate things. And so um, 
I'm just curious from you, could, do you have some, some stories to share of experiences that you've had that ended up kind of humorous, awkward moments or uh, times that you've had to <laughs> work your way through situations that you didn't think you'd ever be in? Uh, I'd love to hear some of those, some of those stories too. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, to be honest with you, there are too many stories. Uh, <laughs> Good. I can't uh, imagine. You know, <laughs> in pastoral, I'm glad it's I, not just us. You know, uh, I'm telling you, the first sermon that I delivered was in Jordan, and I was shaking so hard. The pulpit that I was holding upon, the pulpit started shaking. Apparently, it wasn't <laughs> well fixed, you know. And everybody knew something is happening, you know. And it was so hard to appear in front of small group, 18 to 19 people, you know. But I was shaking, shaking, and I was so scared. Uh, how am I going to preach? What am I going to preach, you know? But a uh, lot of things happen uh, in the ministry. I had like uh, three assistant pastors in Beirut, you know. And one of the all assistant pastors, I used to encourage them to get up, preach, teach, like Badveli Dikran Shanlian. For the first time, I gave him a gown to put on the robe, and he put on. He says, "Yeah, but I'm still studying theology." I said, "It's okay. Just put on the robe and then uh, lead the worship service." And one time we were having like uh, a funeral service in Beirut. And I asked one of the assistant pastors who used to do the praise prayer every Sunday, you know, uh, uh, to pray during the funeral services. People were crying and in Middle East, it's like so traumatic, you know, the, it's like a tough uh, atmosphere. And this young man gets up and then he says, thank you, Jesus, for this golden opportunity. Thank you for your prayer. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, he felt like he was praying for a Sunday worship service, thanking <laughs> the Lord, not realizing that there's a funeral service, you know. So I had to pull him back from the back and say, there's a funeral, be careful. He opens the eyes and then says, oh, Jesus, I want to cry now, you know. Uh, I'm so saddened to see that our beloved one left us, whatever, you know. <laughs> so cliche things and yet i had to remind him there's one more thing very interesting happened i the armenians used to arrive in la and uh, uh uacc wanted me to reach them out and uh, uh one time at badveli abraham chaparian's new church we helped him to start the church uacc in fact, initiated that church in Hollywood. So there were like 300 people in the sanctuary and I preached about Palm Sunday for half an hour, you know? And then uh, I came down from the pulpit and then uh, a young man came and said, what is Palm Sunday, you know? Oh man, I preached for half an hour and this guy, he still doesn't know what Palm Sunday is. <laughs> that was like, I was so shaken. I said, man, so uh, the gospel that I preach, maybe I know a lot of things, but these people, they don't know. They consider themselves like 
uh, first Armenian Christian, but the guy was asking, so apparently I have never given even any description or explanation or defining what Palm Sunday is, you know? And this member is asking, what is Palm Sunday? And during my sermon, I was telling that if Christ fragrance fills your life, then you will be uh, the fragrance all over, you know? And this man comes right after the same worship service, Palm Sunday service, and then he breathes on my face and says, look at my breath. Doesn't it uh, <laughs> like, uh, like a sweet breath? And it was terrible. Uh, garlic <laughs> and onion, you name it, you know, I, I was going to like uh, faint from the smell of the <laughs> awesome. breath. But the guy says, uh, you said if you have Jesus in your life, your breath will be a fragrant breath uh, touching a lot of people. And he took it literally, you know, and he was like blowing on my face, his breath, and I was like fainting from the smell of his breath you know and <laughs> that's then, awesome that, that was another lesson to me be careful when yeah. you preach realize which culture you're with you know contextualize contextualize yeah <laughs> exactly that's funny. yeah, yeah. That's funny. That, that is amazing uh Bhatwi. um <laughs> I, we would love to have you come back on because i know you talked about how your your father survived the genocide how you how you had the life and death situations during the civil war and then you yeah. came to America, had these these uh, yeah. these yeah. churches and preaching in, in California with your uh, TV ministry and then all these churches. Um, but then you decided to go back to the danger of yes. Sudan and Darfur. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, what made you go there uh, uh, during the, the, their 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 massacres? Yeah, you know what happened. It's like uh, the the first two years of our theological study is a missionary years. They prepare you as a missionary. For example, uh, I was brooming the front yard of the seminary. I was working in the kitchen. They think that anybody who will go out and preach the gospel uh, must uh, be ready from not just on the pulpit, but on during your daily living, you know. So I used to do a lot of things in the seminary, and I had hard time uh, sometimes, you know. I said, I came here to study, and they're asking me two hours a day, you have to work, no matter who you are, whether you pay full-time and so on. So missionary, uh, uh, reaching out to the world that Jesus died for, that was like instilled in me. And then when I became a Presbyterian pastor, I became like world missions pastor. And then I heard about Darfur, about the massacre in Darfur, in Rwanda. And then being the son of a survivor, I thought, my goodness, uh, I have to do something. So uh, I asked the church, they gave me two minutes to make an appeal uh, for the finances to go to Sudan and specifically to Darfur. And you know, uh, in less than two minutes, it was like maybe 90 seconds, I made an appeal 
and I got like three unanimous checks amounting to $70,000, you know. So I transferred that money to Jordan. And then I went to Jordan. The State Department said, you cannot travel. The situation in Sudan is very dangerous. But being having a Jordanian passport, I went to Jordan. I got my visa in a couple of hours. And then I went to Sudan as a Jordanian. But deep down, I'm Armenian, you know, but I had a Jordanian passport at that time. So went to Sudan, went, drove 40 kilometers into the desert where the survivors of the genocide, Darfurian genocide, were spread in this desert and the Episcopalian church was taking care of them. So we literally drove into the Red Desert with the help of the archbishop in Sudan. That's the only church the government acknowledges, the evangelical church, besides the Armenian Apostolic Church, and went to the desert. And I saw uh, hundreds and thousands of uh, people in the desert living very primitive life. And we had a worship service in a shack in the desert, maybe more than 200 people gathered. We worshiped five hours. The worship service went on for five hours. After three hours of praising, singing, witnessing, then I was asked to preach after three hours. So under the sun, under the heat, 48 centigrade. I mean, you can imagine the rest. After uh, preaching to them, God really burdened me that we need to build a church in the desert. And uh, they were like talking about 200 seats church. I said, let's go with 1,000. Well, isn't it too big? No, the need is greater here. So we went to 1,000 seat church. And uh, yet the small location that they have, this shack, it's a shack. It's like bamboo on the top, uh, no walls, nothing, you know. Uh, there were like two houses, one in the front and one in the back. So we wanted to buy those houses in order to build a church for a thousand people. And then uh, the owners of the houses, they said, we were put here by the government so that the church location will not expand. They were like very honest and open. So I offered them $3,000 cash, you know, and one of them was afraid, but later uh, he said, I might think about it. And then in the meantime, 80 to 100 people, there was a prayer meeting under the moonlight in the desert uh, regarding the new church building and the houses who rejected to sell their house. In the morning, one of the young people said, turn around. We turned around and then we saw the house collapsed, collapsed, literally collapsed. And they got so scared. They said, the God of the Christians are, uh, the gods of the Christians are chasing us. And then the owner came and said, I'm ready to sell my house for $2,000, you know. But we paid him $3,000. We bought the house. We bought the other house, and yet 
government, the government was not allowing us to build a church that big. So they we went to the courtyard, some of the church leaders, not me, I went back to uh, LA. And then the courtyard, as they were talking about the church building, hundreds of thousands of bees entered into the courtyard. And the first reaction of the judge was, again, the gods of the Christians are chasing us. Let's erase this agenda from discussion. And they gave us the permission to build the church. So we built the church. We didn't use any piece of wood because many churches built by especially Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's association, they were turned into ashes with some terroristic attacks uh, and fire. And in my case, we never used uh, any wood. It, it was all concrete and bricks. And we built uh, the church with the purpose of using during the day as a school. Uh, but then the plan was to build another building, just school, you know. So uh, believe it or not, at the inauguration and the opening of the uh, or uh, blessing of the new building, the government said sent a delegation to attend. And now right in the middle of the desert, uh, we have a church with thousand seats packed every night with Darfurian people. And among these people, there were like also a lot of women who have been raped by uh, the army uh, in the open. Uh, we need to have uh, like special counseling sessions, how to overcome their traumatic experience. So we went also to Darfur with tons of materials support uh, helping materials like buying stuff and we miraculously went through three stages of barricades one was sudanese army the other one was like the fighters of the uh, war and then you enter into the actual uh, darfur and uh, we found like an underground church existing in darfur so uh, somehow God burdened me uh, through the spirit and the prayers of my dad. He reached out the Bedouins and the Bedouins buried him. And I felt like I'm going to reach out this desert people, uh, so-called the nomads. And I did. And I did it with great joy. Uh, I had some difficulties to transfer the money, but uh, God helped me to transfer it cash because the secret agent, the vice secret agent of Khartoum was part of that church in the desert. His name is Steve, the American name, you know. He helped me to transfer the money because when I got out of the, of the plane and I had cash money all over, uh, somebody came and said, are you Berge? I said, yes. He said, follow me. Oh, I, I was so scared. I said, why is he saying this? And then I looked up way far away. I saw Steve. I knew Steve had made an arrangement to pick me up directly from the plane. 
to exit uh, with the money. Uh, and that's the rest is uh, the, the story. And I still have contacts with the church in today. And also uh, the, the pastor of the church, Johanna, he was a Muslim. He was drunk. He was going to die in Nile. He was sinking. Somebody saved him. The person who saved him from being drowned was a Christian. And he gave his life to Christ and he became the pastor of the same church. Johanna is filled with, with the spirit. He is a little Pentecostal background, dynamic young man. And uh, he has a team to reach out the desert of Darfur with the gospel. So I had amazing, amazing, I still have connections with the archbishop. And believe it or not, I found out that the closest friend of this archbishop is the richest man in Sudan who is Armenian. Wow. Uh, yeah. Of course, we are Armenians in Sudan. <laughs> so I have now connections with this man. I do send, send him every monthly newsletter that we come out with. A copy goes to him. So we have a good relationship. And uh, because of the war uh, change of, you know, they kicked out their president. Uh, he is in prison now of Sudan and they uh, have a, a temporary government in Sudan. So my point is this, God is so faithful. He raises people, this Armenian guy who is a millionaire, he's now in the Emirate until things calm down. He has tons of businesses in Khartoum. So God willing, uh, 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 that burden for Darfur is not over yet, you know, and right, uh, right. Uh, this is our mission because hmm. as the son of the survivor, how could you be comfortable when you see another nation being massacred, you know, and hmm. you don't do anything towards hmm. them, you know. That's where I am. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Badhui, uh, John Bazian. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation. We'd love your stories. We'd love to bring you back on to hear some more. Thank you. Thank uh, we're you, at thank the you. end of our cup of coffee, which means it's the end of the conversation. Yes. Uh, thanks for those who are listening. Um, have a great uh, day. Stay caffeinated. Thank you. And uh, uh, pay it forward. If, uh, and, uh, wonder, what a wonderful testimony hearing about your, grand, uh, your father, and what you have done. And uh, even in the midst of suffering, you focus on serving and loving anyone. Uh, it's just a really powerful testimony. Uh, and, and I know your dad will be proud of you. For the, you for know, uh, uh, thank you for this program. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for the opportunity. But it was like amazing to see the connections uh, that uh, uh, I didn't know before that existed uh, between uh, Pastor Jeremy and my background, you know, Dr. Rubian, Tomasian, you know, and then yourself, uh, Haik, uh, I know your great grand uncle, Radvili yeah. Kherlopian. Uh, I have heard his sermons in person. So thank you so much for your spirit, for your dedication, for this great opportunity. And it was a privilege for me to be part of your program. Thank you. It's, it's a joy to have you, Bud Billy. So enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. And, you too. Uh, and thank you for the conversation. God bless you. Thank you.